the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. you're having a great afternoon. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you've tuned in to AM630, The Word, and The Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, it's a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions, life questions, at least as far as what the Word says about it. And I'll do the best that I can to answer those questions. If you'll just call us, you can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area here in San Antonio, you can call 877-630-KSLR. That's 630 that's toll-free. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Remember, if you're driving in your car, and I've been warned out there that the streets are pretty crowded, the safest way to do it is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Well, it's Friday. That means we've got a Bible study tonight and I get to do one of my very favorite things in the world, in the world and that's to talk about the Word of God, the Bible. Uh, tonight we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, just two verses tonight, verses 12 and 13. Um, and it's a it's a an important passage of scripture. So uh, that's tonight at seven o'clock. You can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com, or you can join us. We're not so crowded on Friday nights that we can't get more people in. So feel free to come on in and meet some of the nicest people in the world. Hey, I also hope you enjoyed the ladies yesterday, the the women's retreat program. Uh, it was really fun for me to have all the ladies there, and of course Paula was having a blast. Uh, but uh, ladies, if you are listening today, I want to thank you for being here and sharing your heart. Uh, we've gotten a lot of feedback on that program already today, and and uh, I am really, really grateful that you would come forward and, and serve the Lord. Okay, let's get to questions. Um, my first one is an anonymous question, and it just says, Should every church have a published statement of faith? Anonymous, I believe very strongly that every church should have a published statement of faith. Now, there's problems with statements of faith because they can't get too extensive. Um, people are looking for summaries. Uh, we have a summary of what we believe uh, at Calvary Chapel San Antonio. And I just think anybody who's looking for a church ought to be able to go to their website or call the church and ask for a statement of faith to be sent uh, to keep people from... Um, wandering into areas that they don't want to be be in. So, yeah, I think every church should have a published statement of faith. Uh, personally, when I get asked questions, and on this program we get asked questions a lot about about this pastor or that church, and, and, and uh, I'll often go to a website to try to find a statement of faith, and it's very frustrating when I can't find one. Um, usually you can tell where somebody's coming from with just their statement of faith. Uh, and uh, it saves a lot of time. And, and so, yeah, I agree with you very, very much. Here is a question from Billy. It's a timely question for today. 
He says, it seems like churches are pretty segregated. Uh, Surely that cannot please God. Why do you think that's the case? Um, Billy, churches, uh, you know, I don't think they're as segregated as maybe they once were in this country. One of the things that we've sort of lost in this era of mega churches is we've lost the sense of the neighborhood church. You know, when I grew up, uh, there were a whole bunch of little tiny churches uh, all over the city I grew up in. And typically back then, people went to church in their neighborhoods they didn't drive miles and miles. My goodness, we have people that come to our church that drive an hour to get here. And in some cases, uh, visitors even even more than that. Um, but the idea of, of a neighborhood church, if you go over to the east side, and we've planted a church uh, on the east side, and if anybody who lives on the east side is looking for a great church, uh, Pastor Anton is, is uh, the pastor of the church over there, and and you would really be blessed by his teaching. Now, he is a uh, an African-American man. Uh, his church is pretty well mixed, even on the, in, uh, on the east side. And, um, um, you know, I just think that's what happens. Uh, our church here, Billy, is um, so diverse, it's, it's almost impossible. If you, if you were here on Sunday uh, and hung around all three services, you would see everybody from every nationality, every ethnicity. Uh, you, would, you would see um, um, everybody loving on each other. Uh, and the diversity, I think the church ought to be a picture, Billy, of the city that we live in and serve in. Uh, if I came to church and and um, um, saw only white people because I happen to be white or our neighborhood is, is a little bit whiter than not, uh, I'd be upset. In fact, let me tell you a quick story, Billy. Uh, for many, many years at the beginning here, for the first, I'm going to guess, almost 10 years, Paula and I would pray together for um, more African-Americans to come. Uh, we, we wanted our church to be more diverse than it was. Now, we have a, our church is probably 60% Hispanic. That's what, what uh, San Antonio is uh, demographically. Um, and so our church kind of fits into that. And we had really good representations of uh, white people, of course, Asians, uh, people from other countries. Uh, but 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 our our group of African Americans was really really small. And so we started praying. I teach the Bible. I just open it up and start teaching. And um, um, I think the African American population in San Antonio is about eleven percent uh, of the total. And uh, our church has way, way more than that now as a percentage of the total uh, every single service on Sunday. And, and that's the way it's supposed to be. I agree with you that it doesn't please God, but we also have to remember that people tend to go to church closer to where they live. And if you live in an area on the east side, it is primarily African-American. If you go to church on the east side where you live, you're probably going to be surrounded by African-Americans. I don't think that's the intent of the churches there. I'm confident I'd be really, really welcome if if um, um, I went to church there. Um, but I think we should have our churches look like the cities that we live in. And, um, you know, you can go back to the earlier history of this country and, and understand the divisions in the culture itself, Billy, and uh, that division was there. Uh, that separation, the, 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 the racism, the, the prejudice. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough that I grew up in a time where um, uh, the city was prejudiced. I, I have a sort of unique perspective on it because uh, obviously I've been married to a beautiful black woman for, um, we've been together 49 years. In fact, that's coming up real soon. And um, it was way different back then. Uh, we had people wanted to fight me. I had people that made comments and called me names. Um, um, I had jobs that I lost or didn't get because I was married to a black woman. And uh, things were really, really different back then. But boy, have things ever really changed. Now, I know there's still lots of racism being trumpeted in this country, and I know it exists. I have two 
sons who uh, the world would describe as being black, and um, they faced uh, prejudice and and uh, profiling and all those other things. The one thing, that, the one place that should never happen is in the church. So uh, I think Billy probably need to come to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio or find any number of churches where you're going to see large groups of people from everywhere and from every background. Let me say one other thing. Um, one of the things that seems to be missing in our church culture that obviously wasn't missing in the first century church is that people really took care of one another. They watched out for one another. People walked in, and if they were in need, they let people know. Nobody tried to make it on their own. And we live in a pretty private world. You know, we, we want to slip in church and slip out of church without being noticed. Um, we don't want to open our, our our personal business up to people. Um, it was not that way in the beginning. It shouldn't be that way now. Church should be a place that's safe. That doesn't mean there aren't wolves there. It doesn't mean there aren't some bad people there. Um, but what it means is that the church at large ought to be a place where we can come in, we can sit down, and we can find people just like us. One of the reasons that we need um, to be in church, we need to fellowship, Billy, is that um, wherever you go to church, there's somebody who's already been through what you're going through right now. It doesn't matter what color their skin are. Their skin might be. It doesn't matter uh, how old they are. Um, that's um, a source of help and comfort for the people of God. Let me say one other thing. I find much more separation. I won't use the word segregation because of the connotation. But I find a lot of separation between older and younger. And that really grieves my heart, Billy, because... Um, you know, we young zealous, <laughs> I'm laughing at myself, I just included me in this, but the really young zealous people in the church, they need more mature older Christians. They need somebody to sort of cool their jets a bit, and, and the older people who start to sort of shrink back from serving and shrink back from engaging other people, uh, they need those zealous young Christians, and it's such a, a, a treasure of resources the people and their life experiences. Let me just say this. Everybody in this audience who is who is under 40, believe me, when you go to church, you start looking for older people that have been walking with Jesus for a very, very long time. Any of you younger people who are, uh, who are uh, having some marriage issues, look at the older people that have been married for 30, 40, 50 years. We had somebody... In our church uh, last week, uh, our announcer says, okay, anniversaries, and, and uh, last month, I think it was, uh, we, we had somebody 60 years they were married. Just hearing that, and this is one of the reasons we do it, just hearing that ought to encourage some younger people who are going through some difficult struggles to find them after church and say, can we buy you a cup of coffee or can we buy you lunch? We need some help in our marriage, and we figure you guys got it figured out. So that's what the body's supposed to be, and the body is supposed to be absolutely colorblind. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Danny says, Pastor Ron, can Christians be demon-possessed? Danny, the answer is no. Um, never, not ever. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. It doesn't say that the other he who is in us. Um, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, just like Jesus, in him is light, there's no darkness at all. And so for a Christian to be told that he or she could be demon-possessed is completely contrary to any reasonable understanding of Scripture. Now, I realize there are a bunch of churches, Danny, and I've had some tragic experiences with this uh, myself, but uh, uh, just just people who were misled in other churches. There are churches that are casting out demons, deliverance ministries, um, people who are believers in Christ, uh, and they do so much damage, so much harm, more than I can even take the time on this program to talk about. So we have to understand there is no demon that Jesus and the person of the Holy Spirit is going to share his space with. It's just that simple. 
when you are in a church, and maybe that's the reason you're asking the question, Danny, when you're in a church and there's all this talk about demons of lust or demons of cancer, demons of, and you can name it, whatever it is, um, then you're in a really unhealthy, uh, unbalanced church. And uh, you need to really, really dig into your word. Uh, Christians cannot be demon-possessed, not ever. We can certainly be demon-harassed. Uh, in fact, Satan considers that his job. Um, but, but we cannot be possessed other than by Jesus Christ, who possesses all who are his. Here is a question from Tara. Since the Bible says men and women are equal, and there's nothing that says women cannot be pastors, why do so many like you discriminate against women who want to be pastors, Tara? Um, I'm going to really ask you to hear my heart here, okay? I don't discriminate against anybody. Um, you couldn't be more wrong when you say the Bible doesn't say um, anything about women being pastors. It does. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. The very context of that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that's verse 12, but the very context of that is orderly worship. Now we have to remember, Tara, that this is Jesus' church. And that means he makes the rules. And yes, men and women are equal. Jews and Gentiles are equal. Um, um, There's no distinction made between uh, man or woman or different types of people from different places by God. However, in our equality, God gives us different role responsibility. And he doesn't say anything to the women about being a pastor. Now, here's what you've got to really do, Tara. If you're the one who wants to be a pastor, open your Bible exegete that passage, understand that Paul is laying down rules that that were effective then, they're effective now. The Word of God doesn't change. And if God says he doesn't permit a woman to teach her of authority over a man, and if a pastor is a teacher of the Bible and also then assumes the authority of the spiritual of the church, how do you not disqualify yourself from that calling. You can't believe part of the Bible, not not the rest of it. And you've got to be a good expositor of the Bible, Tara, and to do that, you have to have a solid hermeneutic. That's the, 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 the science of Bible interpretation. And the only conclusion you can come to is that the desire to be a pastor is not from God at all. It's just from you. Now, let me say one other thing, Tara. We live in a world of entitlement. We think that God ought to give us anything and everything that we want. It's always been that way. I, we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God said, I give you every plant for food. All of this is yours. You don't have to share it with anybody. There's just one rule. You cannot eat to the fruit of the knowledge or of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Leave that one alone and you'll be fine. Everything else is yours. And what did we want? Eve was the first one who approached that tree. She was the one who was deceived. Why is it that we want the one thing God said we can't have when he's given us everything else? Now, Tara, I think we need women Bible teachers. Uh, a couple of the ladies that were on the program yesterday are wonderfully gifted Bible teachers, but they teach women, they counsel, and they do that face-to-face, but, but counseling is just personalizing the Word of God, teaching. Why is it that that's not enough for us? Why can't we say, Jesus, you're in charge, not me? Why is it so hard just to do what he's called us to do instead of wanting that which he hasn't called us to do? i got to tell you, Tara, I'm, I, I have a terrible singing voice. What if I were to say, you know, I feel God's calling me to lead worship. 
And somebody would say, but you can't sing and you can't play anything. How are you going to lead worship? Well, I don't know, but God's calling me to do this. I feel it very strong. The moment I opened my mouth or started trying to play an instrument, everybody would know that that wasn't God that called me at all. And if you've been given the gift of teaching and you've been giving a sh- been given a shepherd's heart for women in particular, then follow that with all of your heart. Be passionate about it. And what you're going to discover is that God will use you in ways you never imagined possible. But when we want what we want on our terms, then we, Tara, cease to be servants of God. I said that was my last comment, but here's one more. The proof that you're not called to be a pastor is that you could say in the body of your question that there's nothing in the Bible that says women cannot be pastors. Truthfully, Terry, you don't know what the Bible says. So open your Bible and find out. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And you will be abundantly blessed. And I promise you that joy, fulfillment, contentment, satisfaction, even happiness, and accepting the role God has given you, all of that awaits you. So, Tara... Hope that answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I don't like the word discriminate. You know that's a judgmental word. Um, you know, if we're guilty, we need to be judged. But um, I think my track record is pretty good. William, Pastor, on can you help me understand what Jesus meant when he said he was going to prepare a place for us? I can, William. Um, understand the, the context of this uh, discourse. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's in Jesus' final hours on earth. And he takes his disciples away by themselves in the Upper Room. It begins in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And Jesus is looking at a completely crestfallen group of believers. The disciples have finally got it into their minds and into their hearts that Jesus is really going to die. It was only a few days earlier, what we call triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, when it looked at the disciples like everything Jesus said about dying was, well, no, Lord, it's not going to happen. These people are crazy for you. Their their whole world's going to follow you. They were singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And And Jesus knew they didn't get it. So now he's only got hours to live. And he pulls his disciples aside. He says, now, and I'm going to paraphrase here for effect. He says, now I know you understand that I'm going to die. And then he says a remarkable thing. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Now, I don't think one disciple's countenance brightened at all. It would have been such a heavy message, such a tense time. And Jesus basically is saying what they've heard him say many times. Don't worry. And then he says this. Here's why they don't have to have troubled hearts. In my father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. So what he meant... William was that he was going to prepare a place. What kind of place? Not a home. Not the King James used the word mansion. Prosperity teachers get it all wrong. Oh yeah, we got big mansions in heaven. No, the 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 the, the room that he's preparing is a glorified, physically glorified, resurrected body, a body fit for heaven, a body fit for eternity. We're going to shed these flesh and blood bodies. And, and leave him behind, and we're going to inherit something that's like his glorious resurrected body. That's the only description that we have. But it's going to be like his wonderful body. That's the place he's preparing. Now, why did it need preparing if there's no construction? Well, there was no access for mankind. And that access had to be open. Jesus is preparing a place when he was going to die for the sins of the world. And upon dying, he was going to go empty the place we call paradise, the center of the earth, and take captivity captive. In other words, take those who were there to heaven. 
because the place had finally been prepared. Now mankind, with their sins washed away by the blood of Jesus, can have instant access to God. And that's, William, what he means by he was going to prepare a place. The preparation was his brutal beating, his even more brutal death. That preparation made it possible for you and me to go to heaven. So that's what he meant, and that's why we can also say, do not let our hearts be troubled. You know, sometimes when you're going, this is not the question that William asked, but sometimes when you're doing Bible studies, it seems like everything that I'm reading now is, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Don't worry about what, Lord? Just don't worry. And this is why, because he's promised to come back and take us to be with him where he is. And that's a minor hint of the rapture of the church that could happen at any moment. Hey, we've only got 30 minutes left in the week. The phones have been quiet. We'd love your live calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We've got 30 minutes left in our week. And since you're a lot more interesting than I am, we'd love your calls. Uh, Here's a question I really like from Lance. He said, Jesus never sinned, so how can I explain why he was disobedient to his parents when he was 12 years old and stayed at the temple? Uh, Lance, you're right. Jesus never sinned, and he wasn't being disobedient to his parents. Remember what he said when they came and they were frustrated? Where have you been? You know, you've scared us to death. He said, don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? So this wasn't disobedience to his parents at all. This was, in fact, obedience to his parent. It was just obedience to his father. I always imagine when he said that to his mother, that she had no possible response. Now, obviously, we don't have all of the words of the communication in Scripture. Um, but I, I'm certain, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll make an excuse to your mom and, and I'll bet when Jesus said that, she was uh, and had nothing to say because he was being obedient to his parents. One of the things, Lance, that we've always got to remember is that Jesus, had he sinned even once, had this been disobedient, then we'd still be lost in our sins. You know, Jesus never went through the terrible twos. His twos were terrific. When we had our second son, Terry, his name was uh, Terry. Our first son was Ronnie, and uh, our second son was Terry. And uh, Paula decided a long time ago, she says, you know, I'm not going to let them live up to a, a, a standard behavior that, they, that the world says is opposite. Well, it's just the terrible twos. So she gave him names. Remarkable was Ronnie's nickname, and terrific was Terry's nickname. And and you know what? If you expect that, they kind of lived up to it. Well, Jesus didn't go through the terrible twos. Jesus didn't throw a fit. Jesus didn't get his caught with his hands in the cookie jar. Jesus was obedient. Remember, in him is light. There's no darkness at all. I realize how difficult that is for us to understand, but there was nothing disobedient at all about him staying in the temple. He was about his father's business. Twelve years old. That kind of awareness. Here's a question from Janie. She says, my question is about infant baptism. Is it a good or bad thing to practice? Uh, Janie, it's a terrible thing to practice because it's not biblical. Now, baptism is a good thing. Infant baptism is a terrible thing. It's based on tradition. Uh, the traditions of men. It's a very religious thing to do. And the reason it's harmful, apart from being unbiblical, 
is it gives people a false sense of security, not only the, 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 the child that will grow up, but also the parents of that child. Uh, we knew uh, a family in California before we came out here, uh, a woman who we loved, and she was helpful. Their church practiced infant baptism, and uh, both of her sons were baptized as infants, and she just told everybody that her kids are Christians. I knew those kids. They weren't Christians at all. They wanted nothing to do with God. They they didn't live one minute of their life for the Lord. But they were all carrying this, I've been baptized, so I'm going to get into heaven, sort of false insurance policy, eternal insurance policy. Uh, and I've just seen that way too many times. It's also one of those things, and we talk to a lot of Catholics here in San Antonio, Janie, because of of uh, our population and uh, of the religious preferences uh, in San Antonio. Sixty percent of the people are professing Catholics, and um, um, you talk to them about you, you know you need to be obedient to God, you need to be born again. No, I'm fine because I was baptized as a baby. Um, well, that doesn't save anybody. It was a very religious man, Janie, that Jesus said, you must be born again. He told him twice the same thing. You, of all people, shouldn't be surprised when I say you must be born again. And when we find religious rituals or observances that have nothing whatsoever to do with the Bible, that, that have no grounding in the Word of God, um, we are going through empty motions, and infant baptism is one of those empty motions. So don't do it. Uh, what we do, I just had a, a, a wonderful opportunity this is past Sunday uh, to dedicate um, uh, another baby to the Lord. And um, when, when we dedicate them to the Lord, we're simply uh, saying, Jesus, this is your gift to us, a gift that we're going to return to you. And we're going to do it as adults. We're going to do it as parents. We're going to do it as siblings. We're going to do it as church family. Um, by, by rightly representing you, we're going to show this young boy or this young girl who you are. And I always say this, Janie, I pray, Lord, that the moment, the very day that this baby is aware of his or her sin, I pray that the conclusion they'll come to is, I need my mommy and daddy's Jesus. And so that's the dedication. We're, we're as much dedicating the family as we're dedicating the child. But believe me, those children are told, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. Thanks for the question, Janie. Les says, my question is about Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Why did Jesus ask why the rich young man called Jesus good? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. He, he asked that question because two reasons. He knew the heart of this rich young ruler. Uh, he proves that in this whole exchange. But what he was calling attention to was the accountability of the rich young ruler. And this is a great story, Les. This is a, uh, um, a, the, the man we all hate. You know, he's young, he's rich, he's, I'm sure he's handsome, and he's important. He's got a good job. I mean, he's uh, an influential person. And yet he comes to Jesus, a good master, a good teacher. And when Jesus says, why do you call me good? He knew that the scriptures, there's none good but God. And Jesus was saying, why do you call me good? He was pointing out, now you're accountable. You know who I am. You know I'm God in, incarnate. I'm God in human flesh. And so now that we've got that settled, I know who I am. You know who I am. You've got to do what I tell you to do. And of course, we know the rich young ruler didn't do it. And Jesus um, let him walk away. And the Bible says that he walked away sad. This was a young man who was so accountable, blessed by the Lord and yet at the same time accountable to him, and he walked away. What must I do to uh, obtain eternal life? And Jesus is basically saying, there's nothing you can do. Have you kept all the commandments? All those I've kept. Well, how about the other ones? Have you kept those? Sell everything you have and give to the poor. That's the royal law of love and action. And this man walked away sad because he valued his treasure more than the treasure that Jesus was offering. So by calling Jesus good, acknowledging Jesus 
is good. Knowing God alone is good. Jesus was simply holding his feet to the fire. You know who I am? Then do what I say. And when the man wouldn't do it, well, that ends the conversation. Thanks, Les. Diana says, uh, Pastor Ron, who was Moses talking to in the burning bush? Uh, Diana, he was talking to Jesus. Jesus was in that burning bush. What a wonderful picture. Remember, the bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. That means there was no smoke. The, the, the bush wasn't burning away. It's just that holy fire. But it's a holy fire that saves, not destroys. And since Jesus is the instrument of salvation, that was Jesus. That chapter, Exodus chapter 3, Diana, it ought to be read by everybody, um, meditatively, prayerfully. ought to be read by everybody who's trying to find out what God's will for their life is. The first thing that you have to do is approach God, understanding it's holy ground. Moses was curious. Even the curiosity was a gift. Ephesians 2 says that we're saved by grace through faith, and that the faith not of our own, it's a gift of God. Well, that burning bush was a gift of God to Moses. And as he approached, you know, mankind walks up on on God and thinks, well, I'm okay, I can justify myself before God. And and the, the answer is, no, you can't come near God. Remove your shoes. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. If we would remember, Diana, that that ground, this is such a rich story. If we remember that every time we approach God, we're on holy ground. If we remember that, then we'd figuratively remove our shoes. We'd stop sinning before we come to God. We'd stop making excuses for our sin. Sometimes we get a little bit too familiar with our Jesus. That's when we're always going to be in trouble. But this was Jesus who was talking to Moses in the burning bush, a pre-incarnate appearance, a spectacular pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus on the earth. Here is a question, another Moses question. This one is from Norma. She says, what was wrong with Moses striking the rock in Exodus? It seems like God was really mad. Um, God was mad. Uh, You know, this kind of falls under the category of Jesus' words uh, in the Gospels, too much is given, much is required, and that that implication is much more is required. In other words, Moses, because of his relationship with God, uh, I mean, God had a relationship with Moses that nobody else has ever enjoyed. A relationship that, that like, a, like a man would sit in front of a friend and speak to each other face to face. That doesn't mean Moses saw God's face because he couldn't. But what it means is that they sat down and talked like that. You know, Norma, this is off the context of your question, but one of the things I try to get people to do all the time by continually saying, just be with Jesus, I want them to, just to talk with God like Moses did. You know, it's, it's it's unnatural to talk to a friend on your knees in a dark room. It's unnatural to talk to, to, to a friend. If you're going to ignore him, you're just going to kind of rush through your requests and then move on. You need to talk to him like Moses did, face to face. And we can do that because we have access to God that Moses couldn't understand. Now, at the end of the wilderness experience, or nearing the end of the wilderness experience, Moses was getting frustrated. Moses had flesh, just like you and I have flesh. And God told him to speak to the rock. The people were thirsty. And for Moses, it was just more of the same old grumbling and complaining. You know, that's all you guys do. Imagine, he led three plus million people through the wilderness for 40 years and heard him grumbling and complaining every day. I'm hungry, God gives him food. I don't like it. It's the same old thing. Now they're thirsty. They want some water. God understands. Moses turns to the Lord. What am I going to do now? And the Lord told him, speak to the rock and water will be provided. 
And Moses took that glorious opportunity and took his staff and struck the rock twice. Now water came out of the rock. But God took Moses to the woodshed and said, you misrepresented me. Now there's a great lesson here, Norma, such a viable lesson. We really need to understand this. The lesson was that when we misrepresent God, you know, God wants us as men, husbands and fathers, to be loving and kind and forgiving and patient and gentle, just like Jesus. When we yell at our families, when we are unkind, when we're selfish rather than selfless at home, we're striking the rock. Ladies, it's the same for you. And if you're not respectful of your husband, if you're not submitted to his spiritual leadership, you're striking the rock. If you get frustrated and angry, you're striking the rock. And the lesson that, that, that Moses learned was that because he'd been given such a privileged position, he was more accountable than all of the other people. Be like Moses complaining to God about the sin of those grumblers out there when God would say, I don't want to hear about their sin. What about yours? You're the one who sits with me as a friend, sits with another friend face to face. When we complain about somebody else, God says, no, 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 we're not going to talk about them. Let's talk about you. What about the sin in your heart? And Norma, Moses was so accountable in the same way. When we point out the sin in somebody else's life, we are more accountable. Now, God isn't going to take away any possibility of getting into the promised land for us, the perfect will of God. But Moses was an object lesson. Moses, you're done. Thank you for everything. I have great plans for you. But it doesn't include seeing the land that you've spent 40 years walking toward. So Norma, I hope that answers your question. You know, I love uh, the way the book of Joshua opens. You know, I can't imagine a harder job in Scripture than taking over for Moses. Moses is the most revered of all Jews. And suddenly Joshua is called, as an old man now, Joshua is called to replace Moses. Joshua would have been very insecure about this. Why me, Lord? Why me? And basically God said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you do what I told you to do. That's the lesson from Moses striking the rock. Thank you, Norma. 340-9585 if you have any questions or need anything from us. Jeremiah says... Um, when do you think people started eating meat, um, animals, instead of plants? Um, we, we don't really know. We, we know it was after the fall, Jeremiah. Uh, I personally think it was a long time after the fall. Uh, I don't think all of a sudden the, the animals that you, you had as pets, and really by giving uh, Adam and Eve dominion over the animals, they, they would literally have been pets. Um, at that time, there would be no um, wild animals that you had to be afraid of. Um, um, the, the fear of man as hunter hadn't yet entered into the hearts uh, or the minds of the animals. So they would have been friendly. And and I, I don't think that they would have started eating meat for a very, very long time. Most likely... And this is just my guess, Jeremiah. Most likely after the flood of Noah. That everything was going to be reestablished. I think that's when men became hunters. Again, that's just my guess. Nobody knows for sure. Um, but the one thing we know for sure is that um, Adam and Eve certainly wouldn't have had an appetite for animals. You know, when they fell and God was in the garden, Adam, Adam, where art thou, Adam? 
And Adam said, we're over here, and we're hiding, and we're afraid because we're naked. And, and I add, though, is the word ashamed. They were trying to cover their nakedness with a fig leaf. That tells you the insanity of sin. God told them that's not going to be enough. A fig leaf will never cover sin, Adam. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Think for a moment how horrible it would have been, how life-changing it would have been for Adam to kill the very first animal for its skin because his nakedness had to be covered. And of course, that skin, the, the, the sacrifice of life, is a picture of Jesus. Can you imagine the terror of that moment? What it would have felt like to slit the throat of an animal who trusted you completely. At that moment, Adam was more aware, I think, than ever about the gravity of sin, the cost of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. That blood covered Adam's sin. I don't think we think about that enough. Here's an anonymous question. I fell far away from God. How can I find my way back to him? Anonymous, this is the easiest question to answer ever. Turn around. Just turn around. He's right there. He's been chasing you the whole time. To ask a question like this is an indication he's been chasing you, knocking on the door of your heart. And so all you have to do is turn around. You know, when I got saved, it was 28 years ago. And and I knew for about a year before I actually surrendered my heart to Jesus that I was running away from God, that he was chasing me. Paula kept telling me about Jesus. I knew her Jesus was real. When I would go to uh, my place of business, everybody that I hired, it seems like for the last six months before I got saved, they were all Christians, and I didn't want Christians working for me. But I'd see these good people. I'd hire them, then they'd bring a Bible to the office. I'd think, oh, another Christian. What's going on here? On the day that I gave my life to Jesus, February of 1991, I was running away from home. I only got about a block and a half. And I fell on my face on a public street. And I cried out for Paula's Jesus. It's the only thing I knew about Jesus, that he was real. Paula believed in him. And he was always there for her. And I cried out for Paula's Jesus. Anonymous, the best thing about that moment was the moment I did that. He was right there, figuratively, not literally, but figuratively. He extended a hand to me and picked me up out of my sin. And I got up off that public street, and I knew instantly I'd met Almighty God. I knew my sins were forgiven. I couldn't explain it. But I knew it. I knew I was going to heaven. I couldn't imagine heaven wanting me. But I knew it. All of that to say this. If you'll just stop and say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. You're going to find that he's right there. And all you got to do then is believe him. You fell away from God and indicates you're a believer. But now you got to believe. And I mean, this is what faith is. It's active believing, active trust. That just because you feel bad doesn't mean that he hasn't forgiven your sins. And he'll be right there. And it will be the best day of both of your lives. I promise you, he's going to look at you like, I've been waiting for you. This is the moment. And all that pressure can go away. So that's all you do. That's what repentance is. It's turning around in life. You were once running towards sin. Now you're going to turn the opposite direction and run towards Jesus. And he's going to be there. Here's the last question I'll take for today. It's from Melissa. She says, I have bad thoughts pretty much every day. Is having bad thoughts a sin? What should I do 
about those bad thoughts. Um, Melissa, having bad thoughts is not a sin. Letting those bad thoughts take over, that's when we fall into sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says that we take thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. That's what we do. So you have the bad thought. Understand that that bad thought comes from an outside source. You see something in the world that reminds you of sin and the enemy's right there and evil thoughts come into your heart uh, and mind right away. That, that's, that's simply the normal human experience. So what you do is you recognize the source, that bad thought, that ugly thing comes from the devil, not from Satan, or not from Jesus. So I'm going to do what Paul said. I'm going to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. Let me explain very quickly how you can do that. Let's just say you see somebody that's really hurt you and you have a a, a really ugly thought about them. You want them hurt or you want to get even with them. Then all you have to do is say, I know where that thought comes from, Jesus. I know you love them. So help me to love them the way you love them. That's what it means to take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. If you have a lustful thought, Everybody does. If you have a lustful thought, you just say, Jesus, that's not the way you want me to think about this person or or anybody for that matter. So what I'd rather do is think of them the way you think of them. That's taking the thought captive and making obedience to Christ. So, Melissa, that's the way to do it. It's not sin. Only if you give in to the thought, then that's when sin comes in. Hey, thanks for a good week on the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. Have a great weekend in church and find a way to be used by God at church for His glory. See you Monday. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.